by the time that Margaret was carrying Queen Anne's train the next day, 6th of July, at the coronation, I think Margaret's already made up her mind to rebel against Richard III. It is actually only because of Richard's instability at that time that Margaret is saved, but she certainly didn't have to be. She certainly could have lost her life at that point. Nobody really thinks that Henry's got much chance of succeeding and defeating Richard III. The odds are definitely not stacked in his favour. Welcome to the British History Channel with me, Philippa Lacey-Brule, and to our latest historian interview. If you've been here before, welcome back. Thank you for supporting this channel. And if this is your first time, then hello. Thank you for coming. Thank you for checking out this channel. This is the place to be if you love British history. We have a brilliant library now of historian interviews, virtual tours, and mini history documentaries. And you can also join me live each Wednesday for Tea Time History Chat. But today, I am joined by historian and author Dr Nicola Tallis, who I had the great pleasure of hearing speak earlier this summer at the Harvington History Festival. Nicola was talking about the subject of one of her books, Margaret Beaufort. The book is called, it's this one here, my very well-thumbed copy, The Uncrowned Queen, The Fateful Life of Margaret Beaufort, Tudor Matriarch. It was published by O'Mara Books and is one of four books which Nicola has written, the others being Crown of, Crown of Blood, about Lady Jane Grey, published in 2016, Elizabeth's Rival, about Latisse Knowles, published in 2017, and All the Queen's Jewels, 1445 to 1548, Power, Majesty and Display, which was published in 2022. Nicola has a first class BA Honours in History from Bath Spa University and an MA in Public History from Royal Holloway College, University of London. She received her doctorate in 2019 from the University of Winchester and is a fellow of the Royal Historical Society. Nicola has worked as a curator, lecturer and historical researcher. She is a regular contributor to historical magazines and her television appearances include BBC's Countryfile, Who Do You Think You Are and Frankie Boyle's Farewell to the Monarchy. Now, patrons have been able to submit their own questions, which I will put to Nicola at the end of the main interview. And those questions and Nicola's responses will make up the extended ad-free release of this episode. You can become a patron and access that extended interview, as well as the extended interviews of all the other historians we have been interviewing as well, at patreon.com forward slash British history. You gain loads of history lover benefits, including putting your own questions to future guests for just £5 a month. Okay, anyway, let's get started talking to Nicola about Margaret Beaufort. Nicola, it was so nice to finally meet you in person at the Harvington History Festival a few weeks ago. Um, I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. So can I've given everyone a little bit of an introduction to you, but could you, in your own words, tell us a bit about you and your work, please? 
Yeah, of course. So I am primarily a Tudor historian and a little bit of Wars of the Roses as well. And I am the author of soon to be five books, actually, which is very exciting. Um, So yeah, my new book, Young Elizabeth, is coming out in February 2024. And Yeah, and I've written four other books, including the one that we are going to be talking more about today, about Margaret Beaufort. Yes, my well-thumbed copy. Look, all the gold is gone. Oh, gosh, yeah, that's wow. Very well loved. (laughs) (laughs) I loved it. I've got, I know, I know authors like to see this where you've got like pages turned down and. I love that. Gareth, and I've got notes going through it. Oh, when wow. I, when I'm on with Gareth and if I ever have any of his books and he sees that I've like been underlining stuff he's like oh I love that where have you underlined <laughs> anyway <laughs> so yeah so it's a well-thumbed copy there oh. is so much I wanted to talk to you about Margaret um so we'll get started and I will try not to take up too much of your time but there's a few things which I suppose was maybe the point of the book that struck me about Margaret that isn't in the kind of um I don't say mainstream, but like the the, the the sort of stories that we hear or the impression we have of her. There's quite a lot in the book that was familiar, but a lot, lot more that was not familiar to me. Was that kind of the point of writing it or? Um, yeah, I think it was. I think it was, I, I must admit, so writing that book was actually my editor's idea rather than mine. And I actually had an idea for another book and she asked me to go away and write the pros and cons of writing each of these books, one about Margaret and one about something else. And because I wanted to write the other one, there were obviously more pros for that. So I handed in these two lists thinking, oh, she's bound to choose the other book. And nope, she came back and said, no, we definitely want you to write about Margaret Beaufort. (laughs) I was thinking, oh, great. There's not surely not that much to say. Um, but actually, yeah, it turned out that there was a lot to say. And we've really got Margaret herself to thank for that, I think, in many ways, because I think if it wasn't for the fact that she had been so diligent about her bookkeeping and about keeping all of her affairs and her paperwork in order, then we might not know as much as we do about her so yeah I think the point was to really kind of try and get to know Margaret more as as a person and um on a more personal level I suppose and try and bring that story and that human element to her life that was what I really wanted to do yeah I think you've done it very very well um so let's Let's get back to, it's not quite the beginning. This is when Margaret comes onto the scene, probably in every Tudor um, story, I suppose. <laughs> and that's her, her. well, it's a second marriage or second marriage negotiation yeah. to yeah. Um, Edmund Tudor. Tudor, yeah. Because she already been betrothed when she was much younger. That's right, yes. Right. Yes, to, yes, to John de la Paul, which she never really classifies as a marriage I think that it probably was a marriage in some way shape or form because the Pope sorry the Pope then annuls it so I think that um I think she just chose to forget about that right (laughs) (laughs) so um when it comes to her marriage to Edmund Tudor what was her role in um the sort of the the negotiations around the marriage or at least what does she tell us about her role and what do you think 
actually happened? <laughs> yeah, so she later claims to um, have had this vision, if you like, where she's told that you know marrying Edmund will be a great decision and will really um, will really lead to great things in the future. But I think that that story is probably told with the benefit of hindsight having known that she does go on to produce the future Henry VII um, the founder of the Tudor dynasty of course I don't think that actually Margaret would have had too great a say in the choice of husband I think that that was more a decision that was made by Henry VI who was um, you know already related to Margaret by blood. I think that Henry was thinking very much of the future of his half brothers, um, you know the Tudor brothers and Edmund, of course, being the eldest, and thinking of a way to secure Edmund's future. And what better way to do that than to arrange his marriage to a wealthy heiress who herself has royal blood in her veins? So, so yeah, Margaret, I think, ascribes herself. Um, a, perhaps a greater role in it than um, than is actually true, if I'm being honest. Mm, because she's 12 at the time? Yes, 12. And he is? In his mid-20s, yeah. So we don't know exactly for sure, but he's definitely more than a decade older than Margaret. So, yeah, there's a significant age gap there. So we don't really know her feelings on being married off to a older man and would she have had any preparation for what was actually involved in in marriage in the marriage bed particularly yeah it's difficult to know you know because I think I mean we don't know for sure we do know that she was seemingly quite close to her mother and so we can imagine that her mother would have prepared her in some way and told her what would be expected of her. But we don't know that for a certainty. Um, but yeah, we we certainly know that obviously, given her age, even though, you know, 12 was the age at which the church prescribed that a girl or a woman could legally cohabit with her husband. We do know that in spite of that, you know, many contemporaries still considered that this was very, very young and would wait a few years, whether Margaret and her mother envisioned that this would be the case with Edmund, who knows? But yeah, we can only surmise that perhaps Margaret's mother would have given her some instructions as to what was expected, but we don't know for sure. Because the really difficult part of this story for us all is that, of course, Edmund decided he did decide to consummate the marriage yeah um which leads to to margaret falling pregnant and giving birth at the age of of only 13 yeah um but there was a a reason why he would have wanted to consummate the marriage wasn't it was there's an extra step that meant that he's then more secure if he's done that could you explain that please yeah yeah absolutely so margaret is a very wealthy heiress pretty much from the moment of her birth because her father died just a few days before her first birthday and Margaret was his only legitimate child. And so all of the um, the lands and the inheritance that had been her father's, you know, are transferred over to Margaret. And this immediately makes her a very, very attractive prospect to 
any man seeking to make his fortune basically and and to make a good marriage and therefore if Edmund Tudor were able to consummate the marriage with Margaret and have a child by her that inheritance for him would be secured he would have there would be no grounds for the marriage to be annulled or um, for them to separate and so that would automatically you know give him full control of all of her assets so that was a very very attractive prospect to um, Edmund for sure so but she is very young um what was her pregnancy like do we have any idea how she coped with being being pregnant Uh, We don't really. We do know um, that, you know, obviously after just a couple of months, she's, well, in the the autumn of 1456, she's thrown into a very, very difficult situation when Edmund passes away. Um, And after that, we know that, you know, her, her friend and her confessor, Bishop Fisher, talks about the fact that there was plague, that Margaret nearly died of the plague while she was pregnant with Henry um, because it was so um, prevalent at that time. And so that must have been extremely stressful for her. Um, And of course, England is at this time on the brink of the Wars of the Roses as well. So her family's security is at risk. And we can only imagine that it must have been a very, very difficult situation for any young teenager to cope with let alone one who is pregnant so I imagine that the circumstances that she's faced with during her pregnancy mean that it's not exactly smooth sailing for her Mm. and how this is probably the million dollar question but uh, how did having a baby so young affect her mentally and physically mentally there's no doubt that it had a huge impact on her and um, you know, and it did, it left her emotionally scarred. We know that she and Henry nearly died. Again, Bishop Fisher talks about the fact that it seemed a miracle that at that age and of so little a personage, anyone should have been born at all. And, you know, the fact that he calls references Margaret as being so little a personage is a fact, as is a nod to the fact that she was very physically slight and underdeveloped. And, In terms of physically, it's difficult to say, really. I always get a bit nervous talking about medical medical conundrums 500 years later because we don't know for sure. We know, of course, that Margaret didn't have any other children and didn't become, as far as we know, didn't become pregnant again despite two further marriages. Um, But for my own part, I do have a theory, and it is only a theory, I could be wrong, but I suspect that actually the emotional scars of childbirth left Margaret so traumatised that it may actually have impacted her future choices of husband um, and perhaps left her um, with no desire to have any future children and, and that I feel that that's possibly something that influences her because... We know that when she goes on to marry Henry Stafford, he is a second son. He's a second son of the Duke of Buckingham. So there's not as much pressure on him to produce an heir. And then her final husband, Thomas Stanley, already has children. So again, he doesn't particularly need to have them with Margaret. So I can't help but wonder if perhaps there was 
some some more practical element you know in margaret's choices of husband and if perhaps you know the um the emotional impact of henry's birth made uh, manifested itself in in her marital decisions as well Hmm. i'm sure the psychological damage was enough to think even if i've got away with that that time (laughs) especially in in an era where you know women are dying due to childbirth anyway you know it must have been incredibly frightening yeah absolutely yeah you're absolutely right you know and and she sees that margaret sees that later on with her daughter-in-law elizabeth of york of course as well so she has uh many of her contemporaries around her like you say who are dying mortality for both mothers and children is very very high so yeah it is a uh a reality of life that women, no matter how rich you are or how poor you are, it's just, there's no, there's no escaping from that. It's a very, very, um, very frightening reality. Mm. Gosh, yes. Well, you've just uh, mentioned there her second husband, Henry Stafford. Now this time she seems to have definitely had a hand in negotiations. If I, if I read it correctly, um, No, but she's still really young. So how old is she? Um, And in what way does she assert her own wishes for for this marriage? Yeah, so I think basically losing Edmund Tudor and becoming a mother for Margaret were were real turning points for her. And we have to remember that she doesn't have any male guardian at this point. So when when Edmund Tudor dies, um, she's obviously fatherless as well. She does have a stepfather, but she seems to have taken a lot of advice from her brother-in-law, Jasper Tudor, who had looked after her. And of course, um, Henry Tudor had been born at Jasper's stronghold of Pembroke Castle as well. So their relationship seems to have been very good. But it does seem that the impetus for the marriage to Henry Stafford had come from Margaret. And I think that this was very much with an eye to the future in so much that she recognised that the Wars of the Roses were beginning to take hold in the country. She now had a son whose interests, you know, it was left to her to, to secure his future and to secure his safety. And she was... She was pragmatic enough to recognize that she couldn't do that on her own. And for as much as that relationship with Jasper Tudor was hugely important, I think, to both Margaret and obviously, as we know later, to Henry as well, I think she recognized that she herself needed a male protector. And um, yeah, so she's 13 years old when um, these marriage negotiations begin to take place. Really, really remarkable. Perhaps with some advice from her mother and her stepfather, we don't really know. But yeah, that marriage happens just under a year after Henry Tudor's birth, the beginning of January 1458, when Margaret's 14 years old. So I think it's really remarkable because I do think that having her son really really changes Margaret's outlook on life and she realizes that in order to navigate this very treacherous path in life unfortunately a man's protection is what's needed and she goes about trying to secure the best possible candidate and you know in her mind that is Henry Stafford his father the Duke of Buckingham is one of Henry VI's great supporters so 
Um, so they have family allegiances in mind. And and I think in many respects, Henry Stafford is a really solid and, and good choice for Margaret as well. Yeah, incredible. Incredible that she is so switched on to, at that point. Yeah. So um, because t- just the trauma of what she'd been through the past sort of two two years um, is, is, is amazing. So yeah. but where what happens to the baby Henry then at the point where she's marrying stuff because she doesn't take him but he's not with her is he what happens to him no so he seems to have stayed at Pembroke Castle with his uncle Jasper Tudor um so it seems to have been Jasper really that had the um well made all of the early decisions about Henry's care and we can only imagine that this I mean, who knows if Margaret intended that to be permanent or not? I imagine probably not. I imagine she intended to establish her home with Henry Stafford, which we know that she does at Bourne in Lincolnshire, which was um, part of Margaret's inheritance. So they set up home there. And I think that probably Margaret's plan was for Henry to come and join them there at some point. But that never happens because of the Wars of the Roses and, and subsequent events. Um, so, yeah, so it is Jasper Tudor who is the prominent figure in um, Henry's earliest years. Right. So let's um, just quickly then mention, because the, the Wars of the Roses and the impact that had on on Henry and his relationship or the, the ability for Margaret and Henry to actually live together because what well, you, you tell us what what happens? Yeah, the Wars of the Roses has a devastating impact, actually, particularly on Margaret and Henry in a personal capacity, because to all intents and purposes, it denies Margaret the opportunity to raise her son. So we know that in, um, you know, in uh, March 1461, um, Henry VI is deposed. And Edward of March, um, the son of the Duke of York, establishes himself as Edward IV. That um, establishment is almost pretty much um, very firmly put in place at the end of March with a very, very bloody and decisive victory at the Battle of Towton. And this really has devastating consequences for Margaret's family because yeah, her kinsman, Henry VI, is no longer king. And Jasper Tudor is forced to flee. Um, And this means that when William Herbert, who is one of Edward IV's chief supporters, takes control of Pembroke Castle, he finds young Henry Tudor, then four years old, abandoned inside. And this must have been a really, really worrying moment for Margaret. You know, she knows that her son has Lancastrian blood in his veins, albeit, you know, a a small amount and um yeah it must have been a terrifying moment for her trying to ascertain what was going to happen to her son but he does become the ward of lord herbert and he goes to live at raglan castle in south wales with lord herbert's family and he seems to have been treated very very well by them and almost like a second son really by by lord herbert and we also know that Margaret was fortunate enough to be able to go and visit Henry at Raglan. Um, So we know that this happens at least once and she stays there for a whole week as Lord Herbert's guest. But really, you know, that's, that's not really any compensation for the fact that she's not actually allowed to raise her son. 
but I think again this is where we see the more practical and pragmatic side of Margaret's character coming into play because she recognizes that in order to keep her son safe and you know and her safe as well it's important for her to ingratiate herself with Edward the fourth and the house of York and even though her husband Henry Stafford had fought for Henry the sixth at the Battle of Towton Edward the fourth pardoned him um and really we see Margaret and Henry trying to ingratiate themselves with Edward the fourth and trying to basically keep their heads down and lie low and build the king's trust and we can say that they are successful in doing that to some extent because we know that Edward the fourth paid them the great honor of a visit to their home at, at Woking Palace so we can assume that they had managed to regain some of the king's trust and favour. I think he was probably, Edward was always a little bit wary of Margaret, I think. But I think she was at this point just doing her best to show that she and her family were not a threat and that she was pragma- pragmatic enough to bend the knee to her enemies when she needed to in order to safeguard her family's interests. Just a bit of an aside. I was I was surprised actually how often Edward the Fourth comes across in well in the book about um, really trying to forgive enemies and you know make a, a alliances that are going to carry on forward. Um, he yeah. seems rather trusting actually. Yeah, I think so, and I think that that's you know I think it's quite a smart move on his part really because you can't go around executing everyone um and (laughs) you've got to have some supporters and some keep some people on side so I think you know yeah he also recognized that the Wars of the Roses had taken their toll on some of the noble families in England so does very much want to be seen to try and heal that rift as far as possible doesn't obviously always work out but I think they're keen to do that (laughs) Yeah, that's another. People have to read the book to 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 find out more about uh, <laughs> how he's how he, he it doesn't work in his favour uh, sometimes. So, but mm-hmm. um, so the marriage seems to be with with Stafford seems to be a pretty pleasant one. They seem yeah. to have quite a bit of fun and yeah, I think she's very she's very very fond of Henry Stafford. I think they're very mutually fond of each other actually, and I think. I think it's quite a happy marriage. I don't know if I'd go as far as to say that Margaret's head over heels in love with him, um, mm. but I don't actually think she's head over heels in love with anybody apart from her son in her life, which is quite sad in some ways. But yeah, I definitely think the marriage with Stafford is very companionable. And yeah, as you say, they they have fun. They travel together. Um, you know, they they enjoy hosting entertainments together obviously when the king visited and yeah we know they celebrated their wedding anniversary regularly which I think is quite touching um and yeah to all intents and purposes they do seem to have got along rather nicely so I think for Margaret she seems to have settled very nicely into her role as Lady Stafford Hmm. but it wasn't to last again she's widowed um by this point, she's twenty-eight, I think. Yeah. Um, when when Stafford dies, so what does what does she do next? You've already spoken about sort of when she marries Stafford, how she's got Jasper Tudor, but she's really she knows she needs um, 
sort of the protection of a man. Yeah. Who has she got around her other than Stafford at this point? And what did, so what does she decide to do once she once unfortunately he dies? Well, unfortunately, she's thrown back into the same situation again because um, Stafford dies in 1471 and possibly as a result of battle injuries that were inflicted at the Battle of Barnet earlier that year. Um, for, and during the course of that battle, Stafford had fought for Edward IV this time. So Barnet, as you know, that's the first of, of two crushing victories made by Edward IV that year. The following one is at Tewkesbury. And that is a really, really decisive battle for the Lancastrians because Henry VI's son, Prince Edward, is killed. Um, some say murdered after the battle, who knows? Um, and Jasper Tudor flees abroad, so does Henry, and Henry VI is murdered in the Tower of London. So this really removes all of Margaret's main male family members. Um, there isn't anybody at home to look after her anymore. She's got no husband, no son, no brother-in-law. You know, the king's gone. All of her male relatives are in peril. And she does the only thing that that it's possible for her to do. And the only thing I think that she knows um, how to do at this point. And she marries again. And at this point, she marries Thomas Stanley, who's a member of Edward IV's household. And again, it's a really clever and practical move because um, it's imperative, really, to secure not only Margaret's safety, but also primarily that of her son, that she does marry someone who is close to the king. And Stanley seems like the ideal choice. So again, it's not a marriage that's made for love. It's one that is very much made with politics and with you know securing Margaret's safety and that of her family in mind. Now, of course, it's all thrown into instability again um, mm -hmm. in 1483 when Edward IV dies just yeah. before his 40th birthday. And he leaves, therefore, a 12-year-old son, another Edward, um mm. and it's a, it's a well trodden story and still matter of controversy uh yeah. what happens next with the boy's uncle richard duke of gloucester yeah. taking possession of the of the young king and, and putting him in the tower of london ostensibly to await his coronation yeah um and persuading queen elizabeth woodfield to give up the, the second son his namesake richard duke of york and so the so both of the boys are um housed in the tower um but that coronation doesn't take place no the, the duke of gloucester decides no actually he's found evidence that the marriage between edward the fourth and elizabeth woodville was um was not a real marriage because he edward had already been pre-contracted therefore the boys are legitimate therefore he's the only one um who's uh kind of the legitimate in line i suppose yeah and yeah. and he's declared king and 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 crowned with his wife Anne Neville in a joint um, coronation ceremony at Westminster. And the reason I go into that so much is Margaret's role in the ceremony, uh, in, in yeah. the coronation ceremony, which I found astounding. So she's, well, talk to me a bit about that and how she's she's thrown into another management of a situation. Yeah. She, this, this just seems to speak to, to um, 
how savvy and political she is. But anyway, let, yeah. let, please tell us about it. Is, do you know, this point in Margaret's life, it always reminds me of, of like the cliffhanger um, at the end of a really dramatic soap episode or something when you're left thinking, oh, oh my God. Um, because it, you, couldn't, you couldn't make it up because, yeah, Margaret has basically managed to secure a pardon for Henry Tudor from Edward IV and then Edward dies. And then suddenly, I think this is the real turning point for Margaret and in Margaret's life, because she spent the entirety of the 1470s and 80s trying to rebuild Edward IV's trust and to try and find a way to bring her son home safely. And suddenly, that's just all snatched away from her. And I think that this is the point when all of that pragmatism and all of the caution, all of the shrewd behaviour that she's demonstrated up to this point really goes out the window. I think this is the point when emotion takes hold of her because um, what we do know is that the, the day before Richard III's coronation, Margaret had an audience with Richard. And I think, I mean, it's inconceivable that she wouldn't have spoken to him about her son and perhaps reminded him of the fact that Edward IV had drafted this pardon. We don't know for sure, but I suspect that Richard told her something during that audience that she didn't like, whether it was that, you know, he he couldn't offer Henry a pardon or that she'd have to wait. I don't know what it is, but I think that by the time that Margaret was carrying Queen Anne's train the next day, 6th of July at the coronation, I think Margaret's already made up her mind to rebel against Richard III um, because I think it's at this point that she's just so fed up. She desperately, desperately wants to see her son. She's not seen him for years. And I think that, yeah, this is a really critical turning point when she just thinks, no, not waiting any longer. I want my son back and I want him back now. Yeah. So... And, and this is another bit of the book that surprised me because I, I, I hadn't really heard about it. But anyway, that there were rumours, not confirmed, that the young sons of Edward IV were, sorry, had, had died. So there was starting to be yes. these, these rumours um, or had been killed. But yeah. many believe that they were still alive and there was a plan to free them. Yeah. That Margaret was involved in. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of very shady. We don't know a great deal about it. But yeah, there there is a suggestion in one source that says that she had been involved in some kind of attempt to to free the boys soon after Richard's accession. And um, yeah, and we don't really know any more about it than that. Um, it's yeah, it, it's very shady. There are no other contemporary references to to this, mm. and um, I think that actually, before long, she comes to believe that shortly after that attempt, that that the princes are are actually dead, and that 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 just changes her mindset. Let's just say. I won't go too far into it because I know that it's a very um it's a very emotive yeah. subject. <laughs> but she's already possibly against Richard or feeling very uneasy with Richard. Yeah. To, you know, very her status quickly. of her own son. And yeah. then there's the high probability that that the that the his <laughs> that the boys he was looking after have disappeared somewhere. <laughs> yeah. Um and 
yeah she's a mother she's a mother who you know we've already established her relationship with her son is the most important relationship in her life and it it would you know I I think it would strike any mother for that the boys are 12 and are they nine or 12 and nine um you know that that must be something that she feels on a very emotional level as well I yeah (laughs) yeah no no absolutely absolutely there's definitely I mean yeah people people still talk about Margaret as a potential candidate for removing the princes um I just I just don't think that there's anything in in that at all and it's not because I'm partial to Margaret I just don't see it well in that do you think that that's maybe um a result of history writing itself backwards uh, you know this this um we know how it turns out yeah and therefore you know so margaret though at this point you're you're you've established she's she's just trying to get her son back she's yes. she's not trying to establish him as king that's not particularly in anyone's minds yeah she just wants her son back she's hardly exactly. seen him during his childhood yeah um, exactly how much in contact are they though so we know they physically don't get to see each other but are they in contact a lot we again an area that's quite shady (laughs) yeah we but we there is some suggestion that there were messengers being sent um to Brittany where Henry is to all intents and purposes being kept under house imprisonment um under the auspices of Duke Francis II of Brittany so yeah there is some suggestion that Margaret was sending messengers out there, but we don't, again, we don't really know for sure. There aren't any letters between them that survive from this period of their life, unfortunately. But again, I think it's inconceivable that Margaret wouldn't have tried to communicate with her son in some way during this point. So um, what I think we can say with certainty really is that she would have been doing her utmost to try and communicate with him for sure Hmm. of course henry lands milford haven august 1485 yes probably not surprised by that then so she must have had some (laughs) communication with him yeah so she definitely is involved with the plans for his invasion of england by that point there's no doubt about that and you know some of the chroniclers at this time talk about the fact that she was sending money overseas to help Um, with his efforts and sending messengers and supporters across there. So, yeah, without a doubt, she does have a hand in the preparations for Henry's invasion at this point. And, I mean, she is, to all intents and purposes, Henry's eyes and ears in England. He, She is the only person, really, that, apart from Jasper Tudor, actually, I should say, but really she's the only person that Henry can 100% trust and that he knows fully has his interests at heart. And yeah, there's no doubt about that. She is wholeheartedly loyal and devoted to her son and by this point is determined to do all that she can to support his invasion attempts. Now, of course, how long has he been in exile by this point as well when he... Yeah, so he's, I mean, he's been in exile for years. He's since 1471, when he flees after the Battle of Tewkesbury, to um, 1485. So, yeah, 14 years he's been in exile. So it's a huge amount of time. He, that's, 
you know, pretty much half his life. And he is barely known in England. He barely knows England, really. You know, he has spent a lot of his life as a fugitive, um, as somebody who is in fear and danger of his life and what's going to happen to him. So, and that that fear is very much a part and parcel of, of Mar- in Margaret's mind as well. They don't know what's going to happen to him. They don't know what the future holds. You know, prior to Edward IV's death, it doesn't seem as if the future holds anything particularly bright for Henry. Um, and it's only as a result of the events of 1483 that Margaret perceives this opportunity for her son. And, you know, dissenters from, from Richard III begin to flee towards Henry and look towards him as an alternative candidate. And, you know, um, it kind of goes from there. But even at that point, nobody really thinks that Henry's got much chance of succeeding and defeating Richard III. The odds are definitely not stacked in his favour. At least Richard. Um, of course, he doesn't come back from <laughs> the battle and the Battle of Bosworth in, in August 1485. So, yeah. But then, uh, Henry is king. I mean, that must just have been incredible. Yeah. But how how soon after the victory did Margaret see him? Do we know when their first meeting was? Yeah. So it's it's quite soon after the the battle. It's um, probably in. Um, September so obviously the battle takes place on the 22nd of August it's probably in September and we know that mother and son go to Woking Margaret's favorite home and they spend um, a good few weeks there together and I think that that's quite I think that's quite revealing actually in terms of Henry's character in terms of Margaret's character but you know he's just suddenly won this crown he's suddenly won the burden or the prize, depending which way you want to look at it, uh, of kingship over this country. And he decides to take that time out to get to know his mother, really, and for them to reacquaint themselves with one another and for them to spend that time together. And I think that that is, yeah, very, very telling and quite touching, really, considering that, as we've said, they didn't really spend any time together whilst Henry was growing up. Um, but there is this really strong emotional bond between them. And I think it, it what's happened to them and what they've been through just serves to bind them closer to one another and really secures that bond. Um, so yeah, they spend they spend that time together. And really, for the next decade, they're pretty much inseparable in many ways. Yes. Well, we might get onto that. So um but, I mean she, she's 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 been formidable throughout this, but in a kind of quiet way. Um, yeah. You know, we talked about she, she manages the situation as best she can. Um, again, not to put with the benefit of hindsight, sort of any surety that she might have had that things were going to work out, how she, she couldn't have known that. Um, mm. But once her son is king, she no longer needs to be um, quiet, I suppose. And one of the things that... Um, that happens really quickly, which is what I wanted to to ask you about, is um, getting uh, her son on her behalf to declare her a femme soleil. Can you explain what that means and why Margaret um, 
would have wanted that status? Yeah, so that is something that happens, like you say, that happens very, very quickly. That's in the first parliament of Henry's reign, which takes place in November, so just a few months after his accession. And yeah, she basically becomes, it, this means, this femsole status means she becomes a sole person. And this gives her the power to act independently of her husband. So although Margaret is still married to Thomas Stanley at this point, and they remain on good terms, it is, as we've already said, it's a marriage that's made for practical reasons rather than uh, personal reasons. And to all intents and purposes, they now almost, um, they remain friends, but they cease to be, they cease to live together as man and wife. And Margaret now has the ability with this femsole status to um, to manage her own lands, her own property and her own estates. And this is completely unprecedented for the time because this sort of status is usually only found in unmarried women um, because you know, as soon as a woman marries at this time, all of her property, everything that she owns legally becomes the property of her husband and it is his to control as he likes. So thanks to Henry's intervention by granting Margaret this status, all of her own properties are, you know, they become hers. Everything is, all the decisions for these properties and her land and her wealth, they're all Margaret's to make. She doesn't have to ask anyone else's permission. So this is a really, really hugely important moment in Margaret's life. And for her, this really just signifies independence. She's the one who's in charge of all her assets and she can make her own decisions as to what to do with her money and how her life should move forward. So yeah, this is a huge moment for Margaret where she's stepping out from the shadows and really establishing her own identity. Now, she's not getting divorced. There's no annulment. She's still no. married, but the the properties, et cetera, that would by the law of the land at the time be her husband's yeah. are... I wonder what legal loops they had to go through to make <laughs> sure that those which are technically already his become hers. Interesting. It's so interesting. Yeah. And she, yeah, she does later actually take a vow of chastity as well, which signifies a more personal separation from her husband. But as I say, they do to all intents and purposes remain friends and, you know, they retain apartments in one another's homes and, um, they jointly host a visit from the king and queen later on. So they do keep up an amicable relationship. So, you know, her, her life has started to, uh, quite turbulently. And then she's got to this point and everything is looking really quite amazing. Her, her, her son is not only back in the country, he's ruling it. She has her own independence. Um, uh, her son marries Elizabeth of York, so sort of securing peace for the country. And they have a well, a brood of children, four of which are surviving, two of which are sons. Thank you to Margaret. We know Henry VIII's birthday. <laughs> yes. yeah. It is her vigorous uh, sort of, uh, well, her notes in her book of hours that we get that. I always like to yeah. point that out because it's always a, oh, she was a girl, we didn't know her birthday. You're like, actually? It's only down to Margaret yeah, we know Henry VIII's birthday. <laughs> <laughs> um, and 
so oh, and then and then the oldest eldest son Arthur he 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 marries the Spanish princess Catherine of Aragon. They yeah. have a massive wedding at St Paul's. It must have felt like God was shining up. You know they, they've done everything because she's incredibly pious, isn't she? So so yes. this this is this is God's work, and they're doing it. And then the final few years of Margaret's life yeah. just become as painful and turbulent as really they could be. And um, and her life becomes bookended by tragedy. Yeah. So she's seen her, her eldest grandson married, but within five months, he's died. Yeah. Um, and her son and her daughter-in-law, Elizabeth York, decide to have more children. That ends in tragedy with Elizabeth of York dying and the, and the, the baby girl dying. Yeah. Um, how we, we we see Henry VII's sort of health start to be decline after this this point, completely understandably. How does Margaret cope with these tragedies? I think I think her faith is very important to her at this time, absolutely, because as you say, it's it's such a tragic time for her. And you know, I think particularly with Arthur, um that Margaret's been in Winchester at the time of his birth. So, I mean, she literally has been there all his life um, and she sees the devastating impact that this has on Henry VII and Elizabeth of York. And it's impossible, I think, to um, to think that Margaret wouldn't have felt that pain as deeply as well. She's so family orientated. You know, there are notes in her accounts which tell us about the gifts that she had sent to her grandchildren, including Arthur. So there's no doubt that she finds this very very painful and I think her faith is a big thing for her at this point and also I think really throwing herself into her other projects so we know that she goes on to found two Cambridge colleges and um, St John's is founded two years after Margaret's death but Christ's which is founded in 1505 Margaret plays a very very active role in founding that and in um you know in, in all of the arrangements for the college um including you know the statutes that are put in place for the scholars and um, she visits she visits the college and i think that that's really in some ways in some ways it's undoubtedly a reflection of her own interests in education and so on but i think also it's a coping strategy in some ways and i think that that is a distraction for her and a way of managing that grief and being able to help others. Well, that's the way that I interpret it and that I see it. I think that that is just her way of being able to keep her mind busy and uh, somewhere to focus those energies. So I think that that is just how she copes with it is she seeks solace in her faith and she looks to spend her money for the benefit of others. Mm -hmm. You see that, don't you? People need to be, they need to do something. Yeah. That, that yeah, like you say, serves others when, when they've had a tragedy. It's, um, oh, it, I mean, yeah. it's really quite 500 years afterwards and it's still, it's still a very raw story, really. And yeah. there's more tragedy to come, unfortunately, for Margaret because yeah. she outlives her son. She outlives Henry. Oh. He dies on the 21st of April, 1509. Yeah. That must have been just the worst pain possible yeah how how did how did her death affect her sorry excuse me how did his death affect her 
it absolutely devastates her because, I mean, we know that really their fates have been intertwined since the beginning. Obviously, Margaret's given birth to this child in very difficult circumstances, circumstances which nearly cost her her life and in which, you know, Henry nearly died as well. And despite her youth, she had done everything in her power to support Henry throughout his life, doing everything she could to protect him and celebrating in his glories. So his death comes as a huge and very, very painful blow to Margaret. And her health had already been suffering at this point. Um, But we see quite soon after Henry's death, she Um, she goes downhill quite rapidly and it's almost like in some ways um, you know because we basically see her after Henry VII's death her grandson Henry VIII is 17 he's just shy of his 18th birthday and Margaret almost assumes this role of unofficial regent she's busy trying to establish Henry's council and it's almost like in some ways this is one last One last job that she's doing on her son's behalf is trying to smooth um, his heir's succession. And it's almost like once Henry VIII is crowned, so he's obviously crowned in in June, a couple of months after Henry VII's death, alongside Catherine of Aragon, Arthur's widow, who he's now married. um, And, you know, Margaret partakes in the coronation banquet. That's the last public occasion that she celebrates it's almost like after that moment, she thinks, well, I've done my duty now. I've done everything that I can. It's it's very weird, coincidentally, I suppose, how it all works out. Because, yeah, after the coronation, Margaret um, falls ill. Some sources say that she ate a signet at the coronation banquet that didn't agree with her. But as I say, it's it's clear that by this point, she had already been ill for some time. And Henry VIII turns 18 on the 28th of June. And yeah, it is almost like that is the moment because very sadly, Margaret then passes away the next day at the age of 66. Yeah. So she sort of, I mean, is it too romantic to feel that she was just literally waiting for that to be done and then she decides, I'm done for this world now. I've done my bit. It does. It, yeah. I mean, it, it does sort of feel like that is exactly what happens, and that you know she's she must have been exhausted by this point as well. I think because yeah, her whole life has just been this roller coaster and very difficult circumstances, tragic circumstances, highs, lows. She must have just yeah been absolutely exhausted and ready to go at that point and it's almost like yeah she'd handed over the baton she'd watched her husband sorry she'd watched her grandson reach his majority at 18 I think although we don't know for sure but I I suspect that she was quite fond of Catherine of Aragon as well and so I think it's almost like she knew or suspected that with Catherine by Henry's side she felt that the future was secure and safe. Um, if only she knew. <laughs> As I say, imagine what she would be saying if she knew. I know. What did. So, yeah. Well, I have one final question before we move on to the patrons' questions. And in the patrons' questions, we're going to get a little bit more into um, Margaret's more fun side of her character, which I don't think 
you know, again, is not the one that we sort of see as frequently. But I wanted to, my last question I I wanted to ask you is about, you know, we've got to the end of her life. We've got to the end of her life story. She seems like a survivor. Yeah. And, and, you know, she's got through the, the, the Wars of the Roses uh, era, but does she ever find herself close to being in real trouble was you know was there actually times where you know Margaret may not have survived it as sure as it seems when we get to the end of her story I think about things like her sending coded messages while she was at the court of Edward the fourth she clearly we've talked about was communicating with him before he comes back in 1485 was she ever close to maybe not surviving it yeah, I think in the reign of Richard III, she did come very close. I think when um, her complicity in the Buckingham Rebellion against Richard became apparent or became clear, you know, Margaret is, she has everything taken from her. She has all of her lands and all her property taken from her. We've spoken about how important those are to her. And she's placed under um she's placed in house imprisonment under the custodianship of her husband and i think that she was very very lucky actually that richard didn't make any further moves against her because she had committed treason she had conspired against the lawful anointed king and he, he, richard did have every right to punish her accordingly with her by taking her life so I think that she was very lucky that that didn't happen. And I do think that the only reason, you know, um, I've heard various reasons for her survival cited. And and I think that the reality is that Richard recognised that his position was quite weak at that point and couldn't afford to risk alienating Lord Stanley by executing Lord Stanley's wife. So I think that it is actually only because of Richard's instability at that time that Margaret is saved but she certainly didn't have to be she certainly could have lost her life at that point and I think that um I think it's quite telling also you know the fact that after that that um Margaret just carries on she carries on plotting knowing that technically Richard could act against her if he wanted to but I think at that point she um she feels like she's got nothing to lose so um and she's a desperate woman desperate to have her son back so yeah during Richard's reign that's definitely I think the most vulnerable that she is and the the very closest that she comes to not surviving everything else well on that note um (laughs) we will move on to the questions from the patrons in in a minute um but before we before we go um would you let everyone know where they can follow you um you can plug your latest book or any of the books oh yeah fantastic I'm really excited about this one so um yeah anything else you want to so please let us know where where can people find you yeah absolutely so you can find me on Instagram um where my handle is at Historia Nicola and on Twitter where my handle is at Nicola Talis and yeah thank you for mentioning my latest book <laughs> which Sorry is about out- <laughs> yeah it's great so it's um, young elizabeth princess prisoner queen and that's out on the 22nd of february 2024 and it's available to pre-order right now perfect thank you thank you so much for that pleasure thank you for having me they certainly consider themselves to be illegitimate 
they very much consider themselves to be worthy and to be um yeah of royal lineage so there's i don't think there's any shame at all on their side if you would like to see more of this interview go to www.patreon.com forward slash british history